Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Our guest today is Instagram sensation Taylor Averill. Taylor was kind enough to take some time away from working out to come talk to us today, and we cover a lot of different topics in this podcast, from Taylor's turbulent process into becoming an All-American, having been kicked off of two different college volleyball programs, team dynamics, coaching dynamics, all the different things that he feels provide him with the best source of positivity so that he can grow. Uh, his incredible ability to stay in the moment uh, and his process-orientated mentality. Uh, it's a lot, and it's all really great stuff, and uh, we hope you enjoy. He's an incredibly positive person, and I think you can take a lot away from this podcast. So, uh, are you free for some badminton later on? Yeah, boy. <laughs> What's up, buddy? Dude, what is good? How are you? Are you stretching, or are you just staying in a yoga? Uh, I'm just, no, no, no. I'm just chilling. This is my. Uh, haven't gotten a rug yet, so I just sit on this mat, and I just finished <laughs> eating dinner. I made breakfast burritos. Sick. Oh, dude. Sorry, my lighting in here is so bad. Check this out. This is the fucking lighting I'm using right now, <laughs> just to make this really professional. <laughs> i just got this lamp like tilted over to make it look like mildly decent and it's still fucking garbage so i apologize it's okay the lighting's only for us because we only use the audio file anyways oh you only use the audio yeah oh well that's great now i'll turn my lights on again <laughs> <laughs> anyways welcome to the podcast homie sick dude yeah i'm stoked to be here i'll be completely honest I'll be honest. I haven't listened to it yet. I'm, I'm gonna have to catch up a little bit. That's all good. You're perfect for it. That's what I mean. I reached out to you a while ago about because I was like, oh man, Taylor would fit into this mold of being a storytelling phenomenon for us. And then you reached out and he said, Hey, can I get on your podcast? It's like, yeah, for sure, dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. I, I just you like, you wanted to tell all, your story. Yeah, for sure. I'm stoked that you were like, yeah, I'm down because uh, I'm trying to do a little more of like a social media push kind of, but we can get into that later of why like I'm kind of changed my, what I'm doing with uh, my time, honestly. That's great. Taylor, I don't, I don't know you at all, man. So can you give me a little background on kind of where you're from, who you are, how'd you get started involved? Yeah, I'm a... I grew up in San Jose and started playing volleyball when I was like 15, played soccer my whole life, started playing when I was like 15 at uh, just a local public school called Branham High School and then uh, joined the club team and just like really fell in love with the sport and uh, dude played, played literally everywhere I could with like people at churches, community centers, like 13-year-old girls, 65-year-old men, just like, just loved it. That's back in the days where like two or three times a week, local uh, communities and local towns would have like community center, like Camden Community Center would have like 
six to eight on Tuesday nights. You could go just like pick up volleyball. And so I just like all the little areas around me, I just went and played as much as I could and fell in love with it. And that kind of took me into the journey of being like, oh man, and I'm also tall. This could probably, probably work out. With that being said, I mean, I was, I was not like a naturally gifted athlete in terms of like jumping well. And I mean, I was a big guy, obviously a lot bigger than kids my age, but not really a natural athlete, natural jumper. And then went to college at UC Irvine, got recruited to go play there by John Sprott and then got in trouble, got kicked off the team there, went to Hawaii, got in trouble, got kicked off the team there, got back on the team and then uh, <clears throat> really changed my life. Then I, I met, I just happened to meet like all these people lined up where I met this guy named Daniel Marchong who had a really unique way of training, really unorthodox style um, and like reinvented my body. Met with uh, this guy, Milan Zarkovic, who's a Serbian coach who had a really unorthodox style of, of volleyball specific training, um, a much more European style. And really he's created his own style, I think, of training that I just fell in love with, which was really more of like chaotic, make the practice and training more difficult than the game. So the game feels like it's slower uh, than in reality. And so I just like all these things lined up and uh, yeah ended up being like two-time All-American. I started as a setter opposite and then got moved as punishment to being a middle and then played well one year and got stuck there. And I'm, that's where we are now. <laughs> that's like a really soft graze over all the things that happened in my life. But yeah, for sure, for sure. that's now we're here. And this is my sixth year overseas. I played three years in Italy. Um, then two years ago in Chamont that I had uh, in France that I tore my knee. I was supposed to go to Poland, but I... Um, Tore my patella tendon, had to get surgery, and uh, didn't play last year. This is kind of my comeback from surgery year, and things have been great. So, very nice. Yeah. Let us not disparage your volleyball skill and acumen when you were a kid either. We were at holiday camp together. So, if you're invited to holiday camp, you're like one of the top 30 kids in the country at what you do. Anyone is a setter slash opposite slash outside slash libero slash everything so you that's just skill. definitely not true but you, no but you had skill yeah so, i mean oh, it's not 100 like just like oh i had i didn't have a lot i worked really hard and like i wasn't a good athlete you were a good volleyball player i For remember sure. specifically thinking he can do every skill it's just which one is he going to pick down the road well first of all that's very sweet of you so thank you for saying that. Um, I mean, dude, I, I agree and disagree. I agree with you in the sense that um, I was able to play all the positions. The hard part was I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was elite enough at any of those positions to play at the highest level until like I became 17, 18. And again, I mean, you're right. I'm, I'm putting myself in the box of, you know, I never, you were on the, you were on the youth junior national team. I never made it there. You know what I mean? You were on the training team. You were on the 19. It's just the guys that made it before you because you were playing opposite. It's just the guys that made it over you were Maurice Torres and Josh Taylor. Correct. So it's not like you weren't like right there. I mean, you, you're right there. Yeah. No, dude. I, I mean, at this point, I, I don't, I don't want to make it. I don't want to make it feel like I'm arguing that I was this terrible athlete. There's no winning in that. But I do think that like, my point is, 
I wasn't like a natural jumper and I just had a good shoulder, which no, is I what agree. carried me through yeah, being an opposite. Have a really I was, arm. I was like taller than probably <laughs> at least for sure in high school, like even Bay to Bay, like I was one of the taller guys in club, one of the taller guys. So were you, that's why a lot of us were able to, to go so far at a young age, like yeah. six, five center. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to get this guy figured out. That's just, we grew up in the, not we grew up, but I do feel like our era of recruiting class was very six five six six tall setter, and that's what was hot and trendy, you know. Yeah. yeah and so I think a lot of that's what Spraw saw in me too. I mean, he recruited me as a setter, but dude, I mean, I had played like a little bit as a setter in Bay to Bay, but I'd never like proven myself to be someone who could run an offense, you know. Yeah, I think like looking back too. A lot of the setters that came out were like, well, not even like, yeah, I guess six five, like, like that six four, six five range, but they could all do everything. For sure. Like everybody. I mean, but dude, I mean, look at like, like there were no James Shaw. I don't know how many pure setters at that moment in time there were, and everybody kind of developed into one. Shaw was the exception to the rule because everybody thought why aren't you just hitting already yeah but like look they took at, the risk look at kind of our age group which was you jonah safe james shaw kind of yeah. myself even though i never really started as a setter um micah christensen all these dudes who were like yeah. six four no, six no, five six, six. it was just yeah. athletes for sure and i think you know and i i just feel like back then that was like a lot of coaches were like oh tall setters Lloyd Ball was a tall setter let's bring back like just training tall guys to be setters also that's definitely just trendy now in general especially in the women's game I probably don't follow it as much but you see some kid that's like 6'6 in their 14 it's like hey can they hit the ball I don't care if they can pass I don't care if they can set I'll teach them the skills once they get here you know what I mean and it's like yeah it's sure. it goes back and forth and I think the the women's game, Jackson, you can attest this more than I can. It seems like it's like, let's get athletes, develop skill. And in the men's, it's reverting back to like, hey, we can, we can take some chances on some, some smaller guys and like, let's just develop them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, okay. well, with the women's game, it depends on where you're at too. There's so many teams in NCAA. So I'm yeah. here in Nevada. I'm not. I'm not recruiting the top four setters in the country. It might be six two, six three. Yeah. And some of the top setters aren't six two, six three. That's true. I remember, I mean, just looking at different quads, like the 2012, 2016 quad, everybody was huge. Mm-hmm. Like Taylor was saying, everybody was like these big tall monsters. It was like, like you said, me, Jonah, Graham McIlvain, Ryan Ammerman, Micah, all these guys. And then I remember going in in 2017 and Rob Nielsen literally said, our philosophy has changed. We want smaller guys that are like masters in their craft of being a pure setter. I was like, Jesus, what a change of pace just in two years. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can see it now. It's a, there's like a direct reflection and you have a guy like Josh. For sure. Ma, you yes. know I mean? Guys that are, yeah. like Josh is the purest for sure. He's beautiful, dude. That guy was crafted by God. <laughs> Handcrafted, the way the ball comes out of his hands, dude. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Smelling blood. 
Yeah, there's something about those guys. It just sits a little different. Mm-hmm. And I was not, dude. I grew up, I remember like when, when they were teaching me how to set when I was 16, it was like paddle setting. Yeah. You remember that phrase? Yeah, yeah dude. I'm such a fan of paddle setting. I'll say it right now. <laughs> like that's what they were teaching. You feel like a diving board. <laughs> dude. And okay. Like I think it's morphed a little since then, but um, I don't know. I see a lot of like, I'll say on our team here, we have a couple of an outside and an opposite who have like really beachy soft hands. And I cannot tell you how much I hate seeing that in indoor. I hate seeing like soft sets indoor where they hold it a little bit and then throw it out. Yeah, because, well, we have, yeah, first of all, I just feel like there's more room for error, you know, rather than like when you're just hitting at the ball, it's just a feeling at that point, you know, there's less skill involved. It's more just like, I'm going to hit this with the same speed with my hand to put the ball where I want it, which is why I love it. Um, but I also think that, the like deep dishy beach setting, like, or the beach setting, it just takes away like energy from the ball. Energy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a crazy concept, I think, to try to describe, especially maybe to someone who's younger um, or doesn't understand so well, but there's something about like my inner volley hippie right now is like, yeah, energy, man. There's something about that. Uh, have you talked to Adi about this? <laughs> no. Adi literally told, he, that's the exact and I had never heard this before, and I've talked to Jackson about this. He was like, the, you just need to put more energy into the ball. Yeah, man. Like, and you, can, you can feel it as, as a setter off a reception, as a hitter off of a setter. If there's, like, good energy, you could – it makes a huge difference. And I don't even want to be really begin to describe, like, what I'm trying to say or what we're talking about, but just know that energy matters, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Fashion matters. <laughs> it does. I mean, there's something about like the difference if if let's say as a middle, you dig you dig the ball and I have to set to the outside. If I just like take it really soft and set it to the outside, the ball doesn't have any like meat, you know, it's got any girth in it. Uh what I'm finding out right now and trying to describe it is there's literally no other way to describe it than the ball needs good energy. You know. Let's leave it at that. I completely agree. Do you feel, is there a significant difference for you as an attacker with set? I mean, obviously setters aren't like deep dishing as much, but when a guy holds on to it a little bit longer than when a guy just. I hate it so much, dude. I hate it so much. When guys yeah. hold on to it. I, I hate when guys hold on to it because I'm. Yeah. You're I'm an undersized. I'm an undersized middle with a quick arm, you know? And yeah, I'm tall. Okay. And I might even be athletic now. Okay. So I won't beat up on myself too badly here, but <clears throat> I do think um, like my game is speed. My game is speed to the pin. My game is speed on top of the ball. And so when a setter brings it down and, and the setter we have now, Danilo Jelinski, Brazilian guy, he's great. But when we first started playing together at the beginning of the year, he had, sometimes he liked to bring the ball down low, especially when he was off the net or, um, just in general, he like would bring the ball down a little bit and it just completely threw off my rhythm. And it was the same idea, like him quickly releasing it out of his hands, gave the ball that extra little bit of energy for me to quickly get on top of it. You know, yeah. that's why honestly a guy like you is perfect 
doesn't jump super high when he's setting. It's literally like I can just hit it like a tee off your hands. Whereas like, I remember when I was with uh, James Shaw in Padova, my second year like in Italy. Push it down to you. Dude, it was the most, I love you, James. But it was so hard to hit off of, you know? <laughs> because the guy jumps so high that when I'm jumping up to see the ball, to see his hands, I can't see, I can't, my peripheral vision is worthless. I'm just looking into the sky, you know? Yeah. And there's something about, that's why, honestly, I like, smaller setters or if they're a big guy if they don't jump too high because if i can see the ball coming from a lower point my peripheral vision can do so much more i can see where the other middle's body is more i can see like maybe where their hands are going there's just so many more cues i can pick up on rather than a tall setter who takes the ball so high where now i lose half of my peripheral vision just looking at the ball you know no it makes sense i talked to michael christensen about this and he was saying because i i asked him i said you don't I was like, it, I don't want to say like you're not as aggressive as you used to be, because you're for sure the mentality is for sure you're still aggressive, but the way that you're moving to the ball is not nearly as aggressive as it once was when like four years ago when you were like flying through balls, hmm. you know. And I said, is it a, is it in part because of experience and you're just attempting to slow the game down a little bit more for your attackers? Or uh, is it like injury or what is it? Like, is it physicality? And he said, it's like, uh, it's a little bit of everything. And it's an attempt to slow the game down a little bit. So everybody has a chance to adapt. And it's that same thing that you're talking about. Like if you take it so high every time, like that window just shrunk. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it, I, I've yeah. thought about this. And I've, I mean, I've talked to other setters about this and hitters. Like I kind of like hitting off guys that are a little smaller because it just sits that much longer. So then I can perceive more things. For sure. And again, that's like a, what's the word? What's the phrase? I'm Catch 22, double-edged short. I don't know which one, but there's a phrase here that I would say before I say this. Um, the other thing to think about is, there's also like the combination of you can see more from a lower point, but also a guy like you specifically, I can get off of so much faster, like in transition or um, even just in general, like good pass scenarios along the net, I can get on top of the ball so quick, dude. And so I don't know, on one hand, I like completely agree. And on the other hand, it's like, really what we're trying to craft here is like, what's the perfect height for a setter? (laughs) yeah like what's the perfect height to me perfect height is like like six dude honestly i think this is where micah does so well he's like six five maybe even six four but he can play like he's six nine he could play like he's six foot but he plays like he's six nine and he plays like he's six foot a hundred percent yeah that's a great way to describe it i completely agree yeah so i mean that's something to think about just for setters in general you know and and also i mean that that rhythm doesn't, it's not just for the middles. It's also like that rhythm changes a lot for pin hitters as well. A guy like James, it's like the ball now loses a ton of arc because he's catching it from such a high point, you know? Mm-hmm. And sure. I don't, I don't know how that changes that swing for them that much, but um, I'm sure it does. But I've also heard guys, I remember talking to Jayshi about this and he wants a ball on a line. Mm-hmm. So the higher you take it for him and you can just put it on that line, it helps him. Because that's just the type of ball that he wants. 
where some guys wanted to sit. Hmm. Yeah. Everyone's so different, you know? I agree. <laughs> I love that. You can't win them oh, all. for sure. I mean, dude, Jeshke also plays, like, at such a high. He jumps really well as well, you know? Yeah. True. So, but, yeah, that's interesting. What are you going to do? Got to figure it out. Anyways, um, let's go back to your time. I don't want to go all the way back to your time at UCI, but at Hawaii, when you were relegated to the middle blocker position, mm. at what? how far along do you think or how long did it take for you to realize you were actually going to be – you are pretty good at attacking out of the middle? Um. Well, I'll say this. It took me like a year to just not want to throw a fit for having to play in the middle. It took, I like, I mean, I bought in obviously because I'd been, you know, kicked off the team at Irvine and then kicked off the team again at Hawaii. And that was like, dude, I'll, I'll never forget. Like, you know, having conversations with Jeff Hall talking about going to Canada, like having to play at McMaster or something, just like crying, like, Oh my God, dude, it's like, this is over for me, yeah. you know? Like, I'm such a bitch, dude. There's no way I'm shooting knuckle pucks in negative 10 degree weather, dude. There's just no way. And so that's, I think, you know, at that moment, it was like, go all in. And once they did get let back on the team and they said, all right, but the constituent here is that you have to play in the middle. I was like, absolutely middle, like whatever. I would have shagged balls. I would have just like been the water boy, didn't care. Um, but internally, I was like, Middle, you know like I don't want to play in the middle no and uh yeah I think this is gonna sound crazy but once I was kind of like all right this is I don't have a choice it's not like you can be like hey coach what do you think like okay this year middle next year setter is like I already ruined all the like second third chances I could possibly get it was like all right you want to play volleyball at all you play in the middle so once I kind of like it probably took me after that first season because you know, I had shoulder surgery and came back and then that would be like January was basically when I was healthy enough to play anyways. So that first year was just like, let's just see what happens. I had this huge advantage of like never played middle. So you can't get like upset at me if I don't do something right. I don't know what I'm doing here. Yep. So like most situations like that, I had a huge advantage. Um, and then I realized like, dude, the guys I'm playing against are just tall dorks. <laughs> like, like, I mean that with like the most love possible but realistically a lot of middles are just like bambies oh, they're big dumb animals they're big dumb animals and uh so when I was like oh man my biggest advantage is while it may not be seven feet tall like my biggest advantage is I can do all the skills and while they were a lot bigger I was like but I can be faster than all of them because that I'm a smaller guy, I can be fast. And so when I realized that like, I didn't need to be a super, super tall guy to be successful in the middle and that it actually worked out to be my, and even now, like my, it's my biggest advantage, you know? And I would say like, after that first year of, you know, I think I made like honorable mention or something, all American team. And I was like, Oh, wow. Like, 
this is sick, dude. Like, let's, let's keep getting in better shape. And if I could jump a little higher and be a little faster, like who knows what kind of doors that would open. And then after that summer with working with this guy, Daniel, with uh, Mar training, it like changed my life. And was like, that's when it really opened the doors for me athletically, where then all of a sudden I was like, oh man, I have the, my shoulders back at really good health. So now I have like my range back and now I'm hitting from more of the middle of the court, which just made me feel like I had, I could hit wherever I wanted. Yeah. So, you know, playing the left side, growing up, playing the right side, playing, et cetera. I just felt like all those little pieces that now have helped me so much have, I think, boosted my uh, learning curve for their position, I think, was from playing all the other positions, you know. And, uh, you know, yeah. No, I was going to say, could you give us, because Josh, Josh Taylor used him, the Crabs use him. Triborn uses them. Could you, Costi obviously uses, Costi works for him, right? For March. Uh, Daniel works in, in China oh, with the China, Chinese right? women's national, national team. Could you yeah. give us a little insight about his training? Because it is, it's not that it's unorthodox. It, it's, it's a little different, but it definitely works. It's a little orthodox. <laughs> um, well, dude, I will say to me, it was very unorthodox. Like, you know, I, in the university system, um, from my experience and from what I had asked other teammates from other, other um, not clubs, from other schools, it was pretty standard, like Olympic style lifting, yeah. you know, squatting, bench, like whatever. I don't, we don't need to go into it. Like, but just how you would picture your basic weights program for people who maybe have never done weights before. And when I'm, I was lucky enough to get introduced to Daniel. He worked with the women's basketball team at the time. And I was introduced to him through uh, Ryan Leung. Okay. And this guy, Kaino Mitchell, who, who, yeah, Ryan was an opposite baller. And uh, they had worked with him when they were kids. And I was there for the summer, that following summer, because I was rehabbing my shoulder. And so he was in the gym all the time. And, like, we got to know each other a little bit. And then um, – I saw some of the stuff he was doing lifting wise and it just looked like something I'd never seen his style of training. It's not, you're right. It's not like he completely reinvented the squat, but just his methodology for training um, was a style that I'd never seen. And, and a part of his stuff too, was this kind of this concept loosely of um, training. I really don't want to screw this up, but like training the nervous system to like five, training your fast switch training at the speed of sport or faster was a part of what he was doing that I had never seen. You know, I had never seen like, um, you know, he put a big emphasis on like scap retraction and having your scaps like be really strong and engaged when you do all these different shoulder exercises and being able to um, fast accelerate and fast decelerate, but control that speed for a duration of time. Like there was just some things he was doing that I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And, um, I like was lucky enough to get to work with him for free. Dude, that, that guy worked with me for free for three years, completely reinvented me as an athlete, like completely reinvented me. And, um, I'll be forever grateful for knowing him like truly. And, uh, I, I joke all the time, but like, I owe that guy my career. I mean, he was there for me when I got kicked off the team and still would work with me. That was when we were first getting to know each other. And I was just like, dude, I need to get back on this team. Like I, he was helping me a little bit with, he wasn't my designated guy for rehab, 
I was allowed. So when I was let go from the team, I was allowed to use like the facilities. I just couldn't show up to practice basically to rehab my shoulder. And so he was in the gym, even though he wasn't my designated guy, I just like, we just bonded and formed a relationship and he would help me with using this machine called an ARP and help me with some shoulder stuff. And then eventually he was like kind of giving me programs. And then eventually I was like, dude, I'm all in. Like I, I want to be five days a week, like all in on these programs. And that guy wrote me programs for three years, a new program every week, like personalized for free. I, I just can't even believe it. And the first, within the first six months, dude, I'd lost 15 pounds and like, I was always like, a, just like a baby fat kid, I think. Like, again, like, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying I was this like 50 pounds overweight and like could barely jump, you know, <laughs> but like I was, I'm comparing myself to the best who I thought were the best of the best, yeah. you know? And I wasn't like Josh, Josh Taylor, dude. He's a freak athlete. Yeah. Naturally. Like he's just a freak. Taylor Crab, dude. That guy's probably never lifted over a hundred pounds in his life. He's a freak athlete. I don't yeah. mean that, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like you know like like ben ben patch is a great example yeah one of my best friends innately, innately just, yeah innately he doesn't need to lift a weight ever again in his life and he'll always have a 40 inch vertical and yeah, i just wasn't one of those guys yeah and so when i when i finished working with daniel after that first six months and like my face was skinny and i was like feeling springy and light and fast and then following the next year so i had that first little bit and then after my which would have been my sophomore year leading into my junior year, I stayed again in Hawaii for the summer and we went hard. And I mean, like wake up, work out with him for like three hours, go with the boys and like go to Sandy's and get pitted and do all sorts of fun stuff and come home, but do that like all throughout the summer, every day, like five, six times a week. And dude, if you, you want to see like being dedicated to like your health and being fit and like taking shit serious, like dude, it gets me super juiced to talk about because it's just, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just for me, like it literally changed my life. And yeah. that's why now I'm so into some fitness stuff and, and I've developed not my own method, but I've learned from some other unique minds along the way to kind of put together my own program by myself now. Um, but man, it's, to me, it's like, you can be built. Like you don't have to be born good at volleyball. You don't have to be like, it's not just because you're born tall that you can succeed or whatever. It's like, man, you can really rebuild yourself. And the great part is now there's so many resources for kids and for adults or whoever wants to rebuild themselves. Um, and it's literally as simple as like put in the work and, and really go all in and like you can become whatever you want. And I hate saying that it sounds so cliche, but it's dude, it's just so true, you know? And, uh, yeah. And so to answer your question, that's what he's about. And, and, uh, and I, I fucking love that dude, man. He really, he really did change, in my opinion, the trajectory um, as me, the trajectory I was on as an athlete. And I think it gave me the boost to then be jumping close to, you know, 36 plus inches my junior, senior year. I was the lightest I'd ever been. And I've kind of found my balance now, but like so light, so springy. And just moving and seeing the game in such a way that I'd never had before. Um, but I put in like, I mean, that following junior, senior year, it was like, wake up 630 weights, 630 to eight. We had weights as a team. I'd go directly for there. He worked as uh, in the gym. So I'd go directly to see him at the time 
from, you know, 8.30 to 11, work with him for another two and a half hours. So like lifting for me was 6.30 to 11, 11.30, sometimes 12. Like I was just so all in, you couldn't even imagine. I like looking back on it now, it's like I probably overtrained for sure, <laughs> for sure. But when you're, you know, 19, 20, 21, like you don't recognize that you're overtraining really. You're just like- that. And if you love too- it, you love it. And- dude, ain't that the truth? Like that's when I, when I look back, it's like, not only did, did I love it? I also had like no choice, you know, like, man, I having conversations with my parents multiple times, telling them that like, I'm not playing volleyball anymore. Like, dude, that was tough. And, uh, to get to that point in my life where I was like, man, it's not, it's no longer like, you know, I made a mistake. I'll just try to kind of just morph what I really want to do and make it all work and have my cake and eat it too. It was just like, this is literally it. And I said that to myself already once before, you know? Yeah. So like that amount of drive it forced me to have was like, you're going to love it. You don't have a choice anymore. You're going to love it. And it just so happened that I really did. You know, I really did love the process. And, and to me, I didn't love it until I started seeing like changes in my body changes in like being able to jump you know three four five six inches higher and now being like oh shit this is actually now making me a better volleyball player i'm now able to see what the future could look like you know and once you get just a taste of that you know like just a dribble of that milk from the tea you're just all in so athletes are happiest when they're getting better dude uh, that's for sure but i was gonna ask i mean you kind of answered it just through story but gonna ask what provided you with the confidence to reach that next step but I mean I think you just answered it with just four and a half hours every morning with Mar or with the team slash Mar and you just felt results like I feel better I probably look better (laughs) like I look at myself and that's also part of it dude is like seeing yourself in the mirror you're like I am reaping the benefits of this shit I look better I feel better. And when you live in Hawaii, you're shirtless more than you're wearing a shirt. You know, I would, I would shop and get my groceries at Safeway near my house, shirtless, no shoes, just forties. I'm not kidding. I like, dude, that was just like, that was my favorite part about living there. But for sure. I mean, as someone who, again, like I'm my, I'm my harshest critic, but like as someone who had like just a little bit of belly fat, little baby fat and was just kind of always like not really defined, like, not really big or didn't feel necessarily really strong other than just being naturally like a tall guy. Um, Yeah. You start to, you start to build some momentum and you start to be like, Oh shit, I can see six abs. Oh shit. I can see all, I can see eight abs. I didn't even know that doesn't make sense. I thought it was six pack, you know, it's eight pack actually, maybe even more, maybe 10, you know, but you start seeing a little definition, you start jumping higher. And I'm telling you after that first summer, it was like, how could I not love this? I wake up, I, train for five hours and then once I did that I felt so physically exhausted it was like the best feeling ever you know (laughs) being like so physically exhausted being like man this is I just did like a huge thing and spent exerted so much energy the rest of the day I can just go enjoy being you know a kid and you're 19 you're a kid you know and just go surf and hang out and like do whatever I was living in Hawaii the best time of my life back then so, yeah, I mean, the, you, you do, and I know not everyone loves the gym, you know, and I don't expect everyone 
to love that. You know, some people don't. Um, but I will say when having, when the gym experience changes your life, I mean, that's how you see so many guys end up being like trainers. So they used to be like the fat guy. And then all of a sudden they started training and they saw all these results. It was like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. I want to, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's because it's such a great feeling, you know, but more than that, for me, it's like, it's an even better feeling when I'm putting in all that work and I love doing it. And I also had like a small group. It was Kainoa and, and Ryan and Costi, and we would all work out together. So when you have just like a little unit of boys who are like, just like talking some shit and having fun and pushing each other and putting in a ton of work and then going and like surfing together and whatever, it just like, that's the best life you could possibly want for me, you know? Sure. I mean, that's, dude, that was the best time. So it made it really easy to, let's say like buy in and put in the, the work. <clears throat> by your, obviously by your senior year, you're up you're you've established yourself as a premier middle blocker in the country did you start to feel more stress and pressure as a volleyball player going into your senior year to perform at an elite not that you didn't already put pressure on yourself but from external pressure to perform at a higher level because you had established yourself and you had done all the right things and you're going in an upward trajectory to be like the best middle or was it purely intrinsic motivation that you wanted to be the best? Wow, that's a great question. Um, man, I think really I, and I kind of mentioned this before, like I just really, 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 and even to this day, love the process of being a better volleyball player. I just love it. I love being in the gym for much longer than I should. Uh, now it's a little different in the volleyball gym. I'm like trying not to waste jumps. You know, things change when you get a little <laughs> older. But uh, I will say, like, I just love that process. So to me, it wasn't about like, okay, we succeeded. Like, now we just got to keep pushing and succeed. We got to be the best middle again next year or whatever. It was literally just like, you can't stop me from doing this. Like, I love this so much. And I think when you really, really love something and you're, I was also surrounded by like incredible teammates and incredible, like Milan Zarkovic, um, who's the assistant coach now at Hawaii. That guy is the best coach that exists on this planet. And his style of training, like, dude, you are so lucky if you get to work with that guy. And um, again, I think he, he just, teaches and delivers in a, the game in a way that like I don't know I, I just really feel like like the idea of oh I need to perform because I need to like those aren't even things you think about like we showed up and every day was a little bit different and so when you're like so excited to show up into the practice gym and, and like do different things and learn new skills and um, he just made that gym so much fun that that translated into the game where no longer are we thinking about like, oh, we could be number one in the country or this pressure to be this guy or this pressure to be better than this guy. Like, I just loved putting in the work and like, yeah, there did get to a moment where I knew that I was like the top guy for a middle blocker. And uh, yeah, I think I'd be lying if I didn't say a part of me didn't know that and wasn't like, I'm going to fuck up everyone who comes my way. You know, like, I think you do, you need a little bit of, because otherwise, dude, it's just so hard to be, it's, I'm sorry, it's so easy to be hard on yourself. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to be like, 
um, you know, to be like, man, I'm, <laughs> that was the best middle in the, the best middle in the league last year. Like I got to do it again. And then I come against some guy and I get blocked and I'm like, Oh my God, how am I getting blocked by this guy at UC San Diego or something, you know, like, it's just, it's just so, so much easier to be negative with yourself all the time. Something I learned, I think my junior and senior year was learning to be my number one fan. And it's something that I even try to navigate now because, you know, you look at a guy like Connor McGregor or someone who's just like, and he's actually changed a little bit now. And I don't yeah, want to get into you. Writing, like, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there's something about that kind of like having that kind of arrogance that works. For sure. And Especially I think if you're an individual athlete, you need it or you won't survive. Yeah. And like, um, you know, the, the more greasy part of the professional world is you're an individual athlete. Yeah. And no one talks about that because it's a team sport. And don't get me wrong. If you want to be, if you want to go from good to great, you put your focus on making your teammates better because that will internally make you better, a better player as well and increase your, there's, that's a different conversation. But for this conversation, like, dude, you need to be to some degree, like making sure you're your number one fan. And I'm not saying you should go around like being cocky and talking shit across the net, every single thing that happens. But mentally, I, I err towards like, if that's how you, if that's what you feel you need to succeed, like lean into it because um, it's just too easy to go the other way. It's too easy to have missed the first serve, go back and, and go back and think, man, I got to put this one in. Like I can't miss, then you miss two serves in a row. That third serve, I a thousand percent guarantee you're thinking about putting the ball in. Yeah. And you need to create an environment where you, you stay tactical and you're focusing on like, all right, this is what I need to do now. So if you need to be like, I'm going to fucking ace this dude. If you need to like trick yourself into being that guy and you can do that without being like externally too cocky. Um, I think that that is one formula to succeed. And it's a formula that it seems a lot of like high elite level athletes across the world of sports seem to have. And uh I think it's because I think a part of that is in turn because people are really competitive for sure. But also it's like a bit of a survival skill. I mean, dude, when I go, like when I'm playing against players like Perdraskinen or Lisa Natch or these guys who are like big dudes, it's so easy to be like, Oh my God, I'm going to get buried by this monster, you know? And I have to try really hard to be like, uh, there's a lot of things I guess I should, I don't need to say, but like mentally that I'm just like, in that zone of just like dude literally no one can touch me and it's not that like when the game is over it's over and I'm like the nice I want to be your best friend and, and you know like I'm a super friendly guy nor do I think now that I'm on the court being super cocky but mentally like absolutely no one can touch me and and that's just something that I can't a habit that I feel like I can't lose because especially for me as you, as you get older and I mean I'm out here alone you know I don't have my friends aren't here to support me. Your friends aren't out there that your family's not out there to support you. Like it's just you. And the reality is you want to play as good as you can to get a better contract for the next year. Yep. Yeah. I want to win. I would love to win the French this year. I would love to win the French league for sure. And we have the team to do so. And I'll, I'll put in all my efforts to like do the be-, be the best teammate I can. But at the end of the day, all of us here on a team are not going to play together next year. We're all going to hopefully have played well enough to put us in a better situation the following year. And that's the professional grind. Get on a better team, make better money 
And that's like, that's what it is. And so you have to be, I think you have to have a little bit of like, find your balance, I think, between you need to be humble and you need to be a good teammate, but you also need to make sure you're like proud of yourself and you're um, not afraid that you're, you're willing to face fear head on. And I just think it's a hard thing to do, actually. You know? 100%. 100%. It's something that I've talked to in length with uh, Mike Ma about of how do you balance accountability and it's not my fault because there's a fine line of hey like you need to do this xyz with the ball versus you suck i'm not the problem Mm. and a lot of it is the way that you communicate the problem and create a solution or an answer to whatever's developing versus like and I've heard this a lot. I mean, over the last, this is my sixth year. And you hear it a lot, especially with setters. It's like, you have to start putting blame on other people. It's not always your fault. Cause I'm definitely the type of guy that takes blame versus giving out whatever. But, and cause it's just not my personality to be like, you suck, but that's not what they're saying. They're just saying like, you have to hold people to a higher standard of they can't get blocked or they can't hit out in these certain situations but then how do you do it that's the Mm -hmm. hard part that's where your personality and your character comes into play with this awkward situation for whoever it is now some guys are really good at that because they don't give a shit about anybody they're like the goal is win you have to make this play or we lose that's their focus Mm -hmm. and other people like me my personality is we're all in this together. I don't care how we win, but we better figure out a way to win or we're all screwed. So, yeah, I don't know if that I, makes sense. Uh, I mean, look, I think it's we talk balance. about this. What's that? It's just, it's a balance. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of like accountability, we talk, we talked about this in our practice gym. Like we don't really have the coach who's yelling at players. Right. Like, for example, there's some things for me that um, happen a little more, it seems in this league than it did like when I played in Italy. And the difference was the like little touches. Oh yeah. If someone gets a good touch on the block and it's like a pretty decently easy free ball, whoever is taking it everyone should be making it perfect every time and if you pass that ball at three meters you're getting yelled at when the play is over it's not a big deal it's not let's stop practice and talk about it it's just like dude you can't make that mistake and so i think there's this but that only works if you i think outside the court to some degree have like a clear respect for your teammates 100 percent, you know and but there are um, some guys that can divide that they can, they can be that guy in practice and they can just be on their own, you know? So I think mm-hmm. part of it too is, I, I don't know if you have to, I think you have to respect them as an individual, but that doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with them. I agree. I agree. You but if, I'm saying if you want, if we're talking about like, if being, having it be effective, I think it's more effective when you respect each other. You don't need to be yes. best friends off the no. court. For but sure. there needs to be this general respect that when I yell at you to get that ball, it's not because I think you suck or I hate you. That's it's because this is the standard that we're setting all together, yeah. you know? And you're right. I mean, that is the reality is 
the practice is over. I say, all right, see you guys later. And I don't talk to anyone until the next day. Yeah. For some people, you know, they work. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And, and, uh, I mean, I live away from everyone. It's not that I don't want to hang out just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, man, I, I think, uh, that's important. And I, it's, you know, from a coaching standpoint too, it's, it's so interesting because I've had, I've had coaches, I think I'm sure at this point, we both had coaches who say, in my opinion, too much. And then coaches who never say anything. And for example, the coach we have now, um, super, super good dude, but I wish he yelled at some guys more like there'll be three, four, five times in a practice where the ball will hit the floor and someone won't be hitting the floor, like a ball that they probably could have got and just were like, ooh, 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 and didn't do anything like, dude, you need to be yelling at them. And if it happens once, okay, twice, three times, like now we're getting to four or five times. It's clearly a habit. It's not just a one-off mistake. Like you need to address it. Maybe not yell at them, but you need to address it. And I like a little bit of that, like firm, like, yo, this is like, we need to, you're showing us as a coach that you are, you also think this is where the standard needs to be. It's not like I made one mistake and blocking got used and you're telling me, you need to press, you need to like, okay. But if it's a mistake that to me is not a skill, it's just trying. How hard are you engaged in trying in practice? Like that stuff to me is just unacceptable. And I like when a coach is willing to be like, okay, this is enough. Like we need to step it up. Um, on the other end, it's like I have, we actually have two of those. We have one coach who doesn't say a ton and one coach who, who thinks he has the answers to everything all the time. Um, <laughs> so it's like a really funny balance. And uh, I, I, this is year has really put me like in a position of like, oh, what do I like? What kind of coach would I be? You know, not that I want to coach, but like, you know, what do I really like? What do you like? Matt? Do you like a coach who's says too much or do you like a coach maybe like John who Sparad who like realistically in games can be more you know stoic than uh just feeling like he needs to express all of his feelings all the time Jackson and I were just talking about this before you hopped on the podcast we we're discussing how for me the most important thing is and I would I would rather have an authoritarian figure that says this is the standard this is always the standard this is where we're going to go. I don't care if they're screamers and they talk too much and I don't care if they talk at all, but if their standard is their standard and that's how they're going to live, that's fine. What bothers me is when a guy's quiet in practice and screams all match when a guy's yeah, actually that's the only thing that bothers me. Cause if you scream all match and you're pretty mellow during a game, then you've probably prepared us pretty well. So then if you do scream and you overreact, it's not an overreaction. We're used to that. But mm. when you're quiet all practice and he starts screaming during games, for example, in a stressful moment or something, then that to me shows weakness. That means you're not prepared for this moment, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, so you you played in con then, didn't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I'm just curious. Okay. Yeah. But uh, no, uh, I, I, I completely agree. Your like, message, you need to be standing by whatever your message is. Yeah. And if your message is, this is the, the standard I hold, I'm going to prepare you guys in the, dude, you know what? And, and that's why to me, this is probably the hardest job. And maybe Jackson, maybe you can like give a little of your opinion here. Like how do you gain your players respect? Because in my opinion, it's the number one thing. 
like for example i had a coach in italy his name was andrea gianni guy played in the olympics guy was an absolute italian legend like that guy didn't need to do he held like sometimes he yelled sometimes he was chill off the court he felt like your best friend which instantly had me buy in but also it was just like dude this dude i just respected him so much as a player and then he just seemed like a good dude like i want to he made me want to give 100 percent every practice like i would have felt bad if i played at 50 percent during a practice for whatever reason and so i'm curious because not we have thousands of coaches in the u.s not every coach gets to play on the olympic team or gets to play overseas professionally for you know three four five six years and and i don't know what your career story was like um, but i am curious how you think like how do you gain the respect of your players? Yeah, I'm definitely not throwing my playing resume out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I think one of my strengths is like the off the court stuff, for sure. Like if they come into the office, it's not always like, oh, you screwed this up or you need to be doing this better. It's like, let's hang out a little bit. What kind of, what kind of music do you want me to put on? Let's whatever it is, or if we're out to dinner or in the vans traveling or whatever. But to gain respect, I think, number one, they need to know you care about them for sure as a person. And I think that's where the off the court, the off the court stuff comes in. Um, and number two, what I'm really finding these last three, four years when I've been getting more in the women's game is they really have to know you're credible, you know, and my credibility my credibility doesn't come from, hey, I, I sat on the USA team or I didn't even play pro. You know, my credibility comes from me studying, me talking to people like you, um, me watching volleyball, me talking volleyball, you know, and I just share things that I learned with them. You know, like this, this conversation has, be, has been really insightful, just the way you kind of, you reinvented yourself, you said, and the way you kind of approach things as a professional athlete now, these are definitely things I'm going to be sharing with some of the players I have. And dude, it's so, it's so interesting because um, I appreciate you sharing that first of all. And I, I think what's interesting for me is, and I'm just saying this to be like, so honest with you. Um, like I always had a hard time taking information from coaches who didn't play. Yeah. And that's partly why I ask is I wonder like, okay, guys who didn't play professionally or didn't play on the national team, like, I'm just telling you as a player from my, I'm just trying to be really honest. Like no, go for it's, it. it's so some when I, a younger, and this is not me now at all, 29 now, but like a younger version of me, an 18, 19, 20 year old version of me, if you didn't play or I didn't buy in, I just didn't really buy into like that. I should really take information from you. It was like, I wrote you off. And yeah, that's absolutely. how I was, for example, that's how I was with Charlie Wade. When I first entered the program is I was like, dude, you never played volleyball. And, and he would tell me, I remember specifically my freshman year, um, we were the worst team in school history, by the way, we were fucking dead awful. We all had facial hair and long hair and they hated it. Everyone hated us. Anyways, um, he was like, we butted heads a lot because he would always be like, hey, I want you to static block. And I was like, I'm not a natural jumper. I need to swing block to even get like my top of my head at the top of the net. Like I just need it. And I remember being like in my head being like, you know, <laughs> like, what are you going to tell me about volleyball, dude? And that's something that I think as a player, you don't understand the value in coaches who maybe didn't play, but who have conversations like this, who have studied the game. And as I've gotten older, it's something I've tried to be like, man, I can learn something from everyone. 
like your specific perspective is so unique and so different than um, Matt Furbringer or somebody, yeah. you know, or, and, or, you know, and so I just think like, that's why I'm just so, I'm genuinely curious, like what that, cause you navigating how to coach compared to like, if Matt decides to be like a head coach somewhere one day, like they're going to be two different routes. And so I'm just so curious, like, what does that look like for you? And so I appreciate you answering a little bit of like kind of what that is, but yeah, for sure. And dude, as a player, when I was in college, I was the same way. Mm. Like, and it evolves over time. Like, Oh, my coach was an all American in college. Okay. He probably knows a little something. Oh, now I get to the next level. Oh, my coach was a professional athlete. Okay. Now I need to take something from him. Oh, my coach only played junior college. What does he know? You know what I mean? So mm. I totally don't, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, I think getting older as a coach too, that is like an insecurity that has left me. It was definitely an insecurity when I was younger and starting out, especially with the guys. Um, mm. But it's just something you get over because eventually you do know what you're talking about. You know, I'm never going to have the experience of playing in France or Turkey or whatever it is, but I talked to Matt about it. So that's the best, <laughs> to, that's the best chance I have to learn about it. And I mean, this podcast has helped me out a lot. We've gotten to talk to you, Micah, Jordan Larson, you know, a lot yeah. of really, really high level people, um, not just about volleyball, but about their, their upbringing, their lives. And I think it's good insight for me. And it's kind of like uh, the way I explain it. It's like my cheat code, you know, like <laughs> I don't have the opportunity to go play professionally anymore. Like that's never going to happen. Yeah. So what can I do to still progress? Yeah, man, it's just, it's just really cool. And I, I have so much more respect now for, for guys like you who maybe didn't play, but have spent so much time like researching and understanding and speaking with high level people. And, uh, you know, like the last thing I wanted to say about like, okay, like a, a great example is Milan Zarkovic, who again was the coach at Hawaii, who I think he did play professionally maybe, but he was like a small setter. He wrote some books, like he's a, very he knows the game extremely well but when I first met him as a player I didn't really know his background he was just like kind of a chunky short looking Serbian dude who was just like the reason that I bought into him was his personality like if you would have told me the guy never played volleyball in his life he's just coaching I'd have been like don't care I'm all in on this guy because he was so like dude the way we used to hug is we literally used to practice would finish and he would we would come over and he would, we would rub sweat on each other, on each other's faces. That's how we like hugged or, or high five. <laughs> like that kind of guy where you were just like, oh, dude, this guy's making me hungry to ball, like hungry to get better. And he would like show up early and play games with us. And like he was, you know, 40, 50, whatever. And like didn't move like he like he didn't move fast at all. But he would play all these games and win. And like he just I don't know. There was something about his personality that to me I was just like. Dude, that's what, and at the time, that's what I felt like. Our head coach was very like stand back and, um, you know, and no, no hate on Charlie. I, I love Charlie and our, our relationship has been incredible since me coming full circle in that program. Um, but I just, I'm speaking more from where my head was at the time of being a 19 year old and just being like seeing one guy who like, you know, was very much playing by the statistics. He was a very much so like let's play statistically. Let's put in the serve that statistically will give us the best side out percentage. That was kind of, it felt like his mindset. Mm -hmm. And the other coach Milan was much more like show up and be with me for two hours. 
Yeah. And I'm going to, and these main concepts that make a great volleyball player, like learning to step close the ball and put it where you want from anywhere on the court, little concepts like that. And he just made you fall in love with learning volleyball. Yeah. And, you know, up until the four years, I played, I was with him for four years and for, or three years and for all three years, it was like every, every practice I felt like I either learned a new game or I learned a new skill or I was like, you just felt like you were getting better. And uh, as someone now, and that I don't know what it's like for you guys, but professional practices are so vanilla. I can't even believe it. I'm serious. Like this is my second year in France, dude. My first year in Chamont, we did free attack for probably 30 to 45 minutes every day. Half of practice was free attack. Attack on attack with no block on the net. I'm 29. Attacking is like the probably the thing I do best. I don't need to attack against nobody for 30 minutes. You know, we don't even need to have great connection. Me and the setter now, like we, we showed up and had like a week before we started playing our first like preseason game. Things were great. We kind of figure it out as we go. I don't need like, you know, and so I'm just, it, I don't know. I'm lost now, but I'm just, my point is like, especially now overseas, it just make me, it made me wish like, even to this day, I wish I could go back and train with him for like six months. Yeah. And if you have a really, really good coach, early you're fucked because <laughs> yeah. that's, now, that's now your standard it's like guys that have really for me it's like a guy that has like a really good receiver in club and then you go and you play with a team that can't receive and you're like holy shit was i lucky for the last five mm. years of my life you have a really good coach mm. that is now your standard so you expect everybody to have that feel like that resolve amongst them that impact that they're going to have on you positively. And so anytime mm. that doesn't happen, like, Jesus, what a letdown. Reality, like, you just got a really, really good one. Well, and just to add to that point, like, the cool part has been for me now, again, Milan's, more or less, Milan's philosophy was um, make practice a bit more, make the things you do in practice more chaotic and at a faster, a lot of, like, let's say, unconscious training. There wasn't a lot of, I hit the ball, then Matt and I talk like, okay, it could be a little higher, a little up. There was none of that. It was just like, we're going to go hard, hard, hard rest, hard, hard, hard rest. It's going to be a shorter practice, but it's going to be high intensity. And uh, there's no time for like, you kind of figure things out as you go. And um, so the philosophy would be make practice more chaotic than a game. So when you play in the game, the game feels like it's slowed down. And that's how it felt. My point is now I've taken that because of this exact reason, pretty much all the coaches I've ever had, the way that they train is not a style that I was always like, this is so slow and boring. And like, what, what are we doing? And uh, I've taken that attitude and, and realized, well, I can't change that. And I, to all of my coaches, I've in the after, after hours, I'd go and talk to them in the office and be like, Hey, and it's been the same story on every team I've been in guys kind of just talking shit about how practice is boring or this drill sucks, but no one says shit to the coach because I don't honestly know why. And so I'll be the guy, I've been the guy on every team I played on to go to the coach and be like, hey, everyone's talking about this. What do you think about adding some of this? Like, don't you want to know our feelings as a coach? Like, don't you want to know? Like, obviously you need to set the, I'm not talking just to you, just in general. Like, don't you, don't you coaches want to know like how your players feel? Hey, how do you guys feel? Hey, what do you guys want to get better at? What do you, like little things, you don't need to, you don't need to have them create the entire day every day, 
but I just feel like it's the easiest resource to being productive as a coach is like, Hey, how do you guys feel? What do you last match? Like we come back Monday from a match we had on Sunday or Saturday, be like, Hey, what do you guys think we need to work on? Like some little question that could set up, keep everyone actively engaged. And so what I realized is that's, that's this fairy tale of how I think coaching and, and practice structure and things should be. And it's not the reality. So I developed in myself, um, finding ways to make training fun again. So I got a free attack for 30 minutes. I'm going to spend half of that time transitioning. I'm going to spend five of those minutes doing experimental routes where I say I'm hitting a one ball, but I'm kind of like playing around with how I'm moving or trying to recreate a situation that's like hardest to score in as a middle or like I've taken that philosophy from him. Um, and I love you, Milan, from, from this guy. And like, it's now a part of like how I train understanding I can't control the structure of practice. This is just the type of player and philosophy that I believe in. And so I'm going to find a way now to control what I can control. And that has been like a godsend for me. You know, if we do serve and pass for 45 minutes, I'll serve from every different inch of the court and like just finding little ways to, to um, make things fun. And yeah. Yeah. And, and fun keeps you focused too. You know, if things are boring, you're going to be thinking about it's boring. If it's you're coming up with new challenges for yourself, like what if I what if I take my approach parallel to the net and then try to hit back that way? Like, for sure, that's just fun. And that keeps you engaged. You know what I mean? And to your point of asking the athletes what they want to do, you know, obviously we have the big picture in mind as coaches, but maybe there's some stuff we're missing, you know, maybe like. I'm not realizing, oh, when she transitions this way and this happens, we're not converting. But I guarantee you that player understands where, mm -hmm. where she's messing it up or what mm -hmm. situation it is, you know. So I think there's a ton, a ton of value in player feedback. Um, Sorry. I, could probably, I could probably use it better to your point of coaches are trying to structure everything and make it go perfectly. But, yeah, I think there's a ton of value in it. Not yeah, and this is really quickly. This is no. Either. Sorry, go ahead, Taylor. No, I was just gonna say this is no hate on coach. I, I get that sometimes. Like I'm not, um, you know, I a lot of the coaches, whether I thought they were good or bad, had had the the proper things to say, and I just like at the time wasn't able to. The point I'm making is, I I I am I am as a player now who's getting older, starting to understand like what it might be like to be a coach. And what I've understood is like players don't understand what it's like to coach at all. You know, it's this hilarious dynamic. And then to that, uh, to the opposite point of that, every team I've ever been on, they're talking shit about how this drill sucks or there's, there's this huge disconnect and I've never understood um, why more. And again, I don't know your coaching style. This is not you about you personally, but I've never understood why more coaches don't try to interact and, and get that feedback of like, man, if every day for months, players are talking about how they hate this drill that we do every day, it's maybe worth mixing it up at that point, you know? Absolutely. And I just, every team I've ever been on, there's a disconnect. I, what do you think, Matt? Have you, do you have the same understanding or feeling? Yeah, and I got so lucky with, Marv would have me, I was in the office. So like you are with lifting, I would go up to Marv's office every day for four years and watch two to three hours of film. Hmm. That was my life. So I had this little lap, or not a laptop, I had a little desktop, it was right outside of his office i would sit there and just watch coded volleyball because volumetrics didn't exist mm -hmm. so i just got lucky and i could go through the archives and watch all this stuff 
and Marv was great. And he would ask us at least once a week to like the starting six, he would ask each one of us, like, what do you think we need more of or less of? That was it. That was his little question. What do you think we need more <laughs> of or less of? And I'd say, yeah, I think uh, I need to serve more. I think we're not so good in transition, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And he talked to all of us, meets. If he felt like he had to have a meeting with somebody and one of us was in the office and he'd grab us, bring us in the office and say, hey, uh, you said you need more of or less of this. Do you feel like other guys need that too? You know, well, and then he would immediately translate that into our practice. If he mm -hmm. felt like that correlated with what he believed we need more of or less of, then a hundred percent we were going to do a servant path or like more servers versus passers or whatever that drill was going to be, you know. But he was the best because he always had a constant like communication loop with all of his athletes whether you were the score boy, the water boy, the first setter, the fourth middle blocker, he always mm -hmm. asked you, you think you're better or you think you're getting better or you think you're getting worse? What do you need more of or less of out of me? So like he always had an understanding of where people were. So then going mm -hmm. abroad, I had Anton my first year. That's right. I had Anton Brahms and he was this young buck. He was like 25, 26. So he was like, he was really in over his head. And he'll tell you he was probably way in over his head because he had never coached before. He was just a data volley guy. And um, like he tried, he tried to talk to us and ask us like, what do we think we need more of or less of? But he was so young, he didn't know how to implement it. And he was still trying to figure out like how much power he needed versus how much power he could give without mm. losing us. Which is a dynamic that I've learned is really common amongst people, especially coaches that like the power struggle is really hard of how much you have to be really confident in yourself as well, man, to be able to go to somebody and say, hey, what do you need from me? And not a lot of people are able to do that, especially when it's their first experience doing that task. You know what I mean? Which is what I'm coming to learn. I had, I had another really young coach, but he had been a coach for five years. He had no problem. He did not give a shit what you had to say. If it was the right thing or the wrong thing, if you wanted to berate him or help him, he was all ears. And I had another coach that was a little older, but he'd been in the game for a while. He was the same way. And a lot of it's just experience of like being willing to be open and understanding because it's hard. It's probably, I mean, parents are probably the same way. When you have a kid, you don't want to hear anything about your kid from other parents because you think your kid's so perfect. And then as they sure. get older and you get some perspective, you're like, okay, there's some other idiots out there. You know, my kid's not like absolutely perfect. You have a little bit more perspective, mm. you know? So. Well, why, do you, why do you think it's so hard? Like I, I'll say for me, I've come to the I, point where I think, I think it's like a European thing, like a masculine thing where it's like hundred percent, you know, hundred percent could be. They also, um, I think it's just an old school mentality type thing mm. where like they don't accept vulnerability. I think being vulnerable 
for a lot of, of men in general is looked at as weakness. Like you open and, up and you're honest and people are like, what the hell's wrong with you? And it's like, dude, I'm, this is like the most powerful thing I could do right now is get like, I'm opening myself up to you to like make something happen here. And you're just crushing me. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And I think I know for myself, it's probably something I took for granted um, as a kid. I mean, I grew up in a household that was very, there's obviously something up. Let's talk about it. No one was passive. And, you know, along the way you realize, wow, I have a lot of friends and have met a lot of people along the way that are coaches, players, whatever, that are really passive. And it's always been frustrating for me um, because I've just been like, dude, being honest, shouldn't that be like the easiest thing to do? <laughs> like, it just like doesn't make it like sometimes it just genuinely doesn't make sense. It's like, oh man, you have a problem with like your coach or with a player. Like, why don't you just go like say that problem out loud to them? You know. And I, and, I, grew, uh, up, I grew up pretty opposite, Taylor. So hmm. as I've grown up and I meet people who grew up like you, I'm like, man that would have been awesome just to like understand that that honest conversation is so easy at a younger age until figuring it out now, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and also just like how something so small can be so powerful. Like, dude, if I had a, like a head coach come to me and ask me what I thought of practice instantly, I want to be your friend. I want to be your friend now. You, you're like, you said, you said that earlier that like you need to let your players know that you care about them. And that to me is like, as a coach, like that's a, the number one thing you can do is be like, Hey, it's Monday. I'm thinking about your feelings. Like, what's up, dude? How do you like practice? How do you like training? What do you, how do you, what do you need to work on? How do you feel like such a, and, and it's so cool to hear like with your experience, Matt, that you had a, a coach who, yeah, you didn't, you didn't need to have like an hour long conversation, but just a quick question, let you know how you feel. Want to know how you feel asking everyone like that's those little things make a huge difference. And, and from my yeah. perspective, you know, this is a big one is when, when coaches call it, when they're like, you guys look like shit. I don't know what's wrong. I don't really care. Practice is over. Dude. When you we have literally coach, had our, you have a coach that can acknowledge your team's atmosphere. That also is really meaningful. Cause that means they're in tune. When you have guys that go too long or they cut it too short, you know, like when, there's that happy medium of like, hey, practice is so good right now. It's about to go bad. Just end it. End it so then everybody goes out on top. And if guys want to mm -hmm. get extra, let them get extra. And they'll, they'll feel even better, you know. But it's when mm -hmm. you – but that letting it go too long can hurt because you remember these really, really, really good moments. And then all of a sudden it goes to shit. So then you walk out of there feeling like, man, that just really went to shit all of a sudden. And if you end it too early and it's like, hey, we still got a little bit more before we even hit like our peak for the day. And so understanding the team and that atmosphere too, for me, it means a lot because it means you're in, you're dialed in just like the rest of us are. Dude, that's so funny you bring that up because we just had like a week ago, our first ever coach called it quit and literally that day coach called it quit everyone's kind of like oh what the world? like we all knew we were like some of us were purposely and I was a part of it too where I was like we had had this big open conversation nothing train nothing changed during training and I was kind of like playing like I'm a little pissed and so were some other guys and then we were all bleeding into each other of just this like 
some French guys were mad at the foreigners, but like there was just a lot going on. Yeah. He called practice. Almost everyone was in the locker room afterwards, and we were just talking shit to each other, dude. It was the best moment we've had all year. And it's why <laughs> I think now we can really actually win the league. It's because we had this moment of like, dude, we got beat by this team, Cambrai, who was like, on paper, we should have smoked them. But they're crushing the league this year because they are just dirty dogs, bro. They're greasy yeah. grinders who have this team atmosphere of just like, all right, we're not like on paper, we're not the best, but like, we're going to bring it every night. We're going to play for each other and just see what happens. What we want to do, they said like, to talk to, the, to Gonzalo Quiroga, yeah. who's playing on that team. He played at UCLA when we were playing it. And he was like, do we meet with the coach? We talk about what we're going to do. The coach leaves. We meet as a team and we're like, all right, what are we going to do on the opposite? All right. We're going to serve well, do our best to receive. Like, we're just going to give everything and that's it. Like, they have their own separate meeting. When your team starts having your own separate meeting, that's a great sign. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, that's really so great. Invested. Yeah, man. And so what happened is coach called it quits this last week. And we finally had this moment of as a team where we were just like, all right, this is what I don't like about you French guys. French guys were like, hey, this is what I don't like about you, foreigner. And we start just having this, like, finally, we're having this, open conversation instead of behind our back being like sometimes the French guys trend and then being like yeah sometimes Taylor thinks he's the shit and like everyone having their own little side conversations finally we we practice gets called we all talk about it we resolve it because we're all adults yeah and now we are like the game the atmosphere in practice is completely different we've decided okay we can't change every little thing about practice but like we can bring it every day and we've kind of decided like we have two months left together doesn't matter if we love each other or not. And we actually do have a, a really cool group of guys on this team. But it just like, it's just funny how that one little moment trickled this like actual what was going on, which was some players mad at this guy for this guy for doing this, for doing this. And so now no one wants to play together, practices garbage. And uh, now it's like we've created this environment that like gets me stoked to train again. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of power in that, man. And But as a coach, it's like, how do you know? Because I'll, I'll say, like, there's been multiple practices where I'm, like, as, as a player, like, how do you not see that, like, this guy is done, was done when he walked in the door? Yeah. Like, so where do you see that, Jackson? What's your experience been with, like, having showing up some days, and I can imagine some days, like, the girls want to train, and some days, like, someone's having a, a feeling about something and isn't putting out the effort. Like, how do you manage? manage or navigate those types of situations, if that makes sense? It, it's tough because they're all unique. You know, it's mm. like not one situation is the same. And I'm an assistant coach here, so I don't necessarily have the have the reins to cut practice or stop practice and then restart it or anything like that. But mm. um, it's really helpful if you know what's going on before the training session starts, because then you can kind of resolve it and they can enter the training session with hopefully a better mindset or something, some kind of resolve already. Um but if I see him, if I see something off in training um, and I need to get better at actually seeing certain things, but I'll pull them aside, say, hey, what's up? What's going on? And usually their answer is pretty honest on the spot because they don't have time to think about a way around what's actually going on, you know? Mm. Um, and usually it's just a shift of focus or a shift of mindset. Like, yeah, I just failed this test or my my girlfriend, boyfriend is this. And I'm like, all right, we're in the gym right now. Even if you wanted to, you can't do anything about that right now. That's an outside of the gym thing. You know, 
And after practice, if you want to keep talking about this, I'm with you, you know, and we'll figure out a way to resolve that. But the next hour we're in the gym. And even if you wanted to, you can't do anything about it. Mm. Um, If it's something, if it's something inside the gym, um, yeah, to be honest, I haven't had many of those situations come up. Like if, uh, like you were saying, same boring drill. We've been talking about this for months and I see someone kind of dogging it. I don't know if I, I don't know if I see that for what it is at, in the moment. Maybe that's a great time. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I've thought the same thing about coaches with, like if they have uh, quality players, I see a lot of coaches like take a back seat. It's like, oh, these guys will figure it out. Whereas in reality, when you have really good players, you have to be even more of a leader because you are, I mean, you're the drive. I think a lot of people think that Michael Jordan, for example, was the driving force. Well, in reality, Phil Jackson's the driving force. He's Mm. the one that got everybody on the same goddamn page. Now, Michael's the best player, but Phil Jackson's the brain. He keeps everybody happy and going so that they can perform at the highest level. You know what I mean? And yeah, but this is what's so I think that's really, really hard. That's really, really hard to do. Is to be a leader, is to not be a physical leader, but a mental and I guess spiritual leader. And and this is where I mean this is a bit of now a different conversation, but like this is what makes me think what's the big difference between like let's say coaching Nevada and coaching the national team or something, you know? It wouldn't be any because there. well, see, I don't know, man. That's why I kind of why I asked it because on one hand, um, What's hard is like, and I'll use the example up here. These guys are never going to listen to this podcast, so I feel pretty good to say how I feel. <laughs> but uh, like, you know, we have one coach who um, feels the need to say something every time. If like I, if I went and tried to block and like just mistimed it and it went under me, it's like I already know the second I can feel the wind, I already know what the mistake was. I already know what the correction is because I, it's happened to me a million times. So when I come on the bench from making a rotation, I come on the bench, I don't need him to tell me. And he'll always be like, I need to cut a little, I need to do a little. And I'm just like, dude, this is, now you're just pissing me off. Like I'm 29 years old. You don't think I know that? And so there's this weird connection between like, is it because, hmm, I like I always say like, what's it like coaching someone like LeBron? Like no one's telling Kobe to like, you need, you need to, you need to take, take the ball from here when you're shooting, or you need to like, you know, like, how do you coach a guy like that? Because like in Nevada or like in college, oh, there's so much more that you're, you as a college athlete are not aware of that you're doing, you know, but when you're playing, when you're 29, 30 guy, like Maxwell, David Smith, like, dude, I don't know if you coach them the same as if you coach a, a college team or a club team or like, I mean, obviously not, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, I don't yeah, know well, if it's different. I, I think you're, a hundred percent correct. Like (laughs) it's the, it's the level of your learning. You know, I got the chance to coach some professional beach players and I think like my coaching philosophy is the same. Like I'm not going to treat them differently as people, but like, I'm not, 
I'm not overcorrecting the professional athletes because I know they have a, they have an understanding of their body that maybe a college athlete doesn't have, or a club athlete doesn't have, you know what I mean? Like, this is a really silly example, but if my arms bend when I pass, I bet a 12 year old doesn't feel that as much as Taylor Averill, a 29 professional volleyball player. You know what I mean? So sure. I think deciding what to give feedback on is probably the biggest difference between coaching and even the national team's tough. Cause you have, I mean, some 18 year old guys in the gym and then you'll have 35 year old guys in the gym. So even in that, and I've, I've never been in the USA gym, so I don't know, but I'd imagine that that 18 year old is getting different kinds of feedback than Micah Christensen or one of the, one of the older guys, uh, Dave Smith, you know what I mean? Sure. That's really fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, dude, and that's, that's partly why I like engaging in this way in this conversation. I'm like genuinely getting to that age where I'm like, just so curious. How do you, I don't, I don't really have the answers. I can tell you how I feel, you know, as an athlete who's playing at, at a high level. Um, but it's made me actually appreciate coaches in like a bit of a different way. Um, recognizing that like a, and, and especially, you know, when you're playing professionally overseas, like, dude, what I, what I the biggest lesson I learned this year is, Dude, when you got a guy from Slovenia, Ukraine, like Romania, and you expect a big dude from California, like for you all to have the same mindset, like it's never going to happen. Some of you grew up on a farm in a village, you know, and some of you grew up in, you know, the Silicon Valley. And so it's just like everyone comes from such a different lifestyle um, and trying to find a way to be the, you know, to provide the tools to glue that group together is like, um, I mean, for guys like who coach professionally and even for college, like every year you get a new group to some degree, you know, and, yeah, uh, it's and just so interesting. Think about it in your own context too. Like, I, I think you said his name is Daniel at Mar Training. Mm-hmm. I bet the way he coached you your first month in his gym was a lot different than two and a half, three years later, because you had a better understanding of the program. You had a better understanding of how to train. So it evolves over time, I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. And, and the question then is like, how does that evolve when you have a new group of players every year? Because that's the thing, like our relationship evolved because it was him and I, but like, it's more of like, how does your, because really coaching is like, and I, in my opinion, like you're the guide for the players, you know, and uh, you're there to help navigate them on their own journey. And uh, yeah, I just think that that, like, maybe it's like that, that's what changes a bit, like how you approach things because next year your seniors graduate, you get a new group of freshmen. It's a completely new team. So it can't be the same personal relationship. So maybe like, where do you, where do you think, um, a lot of the real progress comes in, in terms of coaching. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Matt? Dude, that's culture, baby. Hmm. That's where culture comes in. Like you have to, you, you have an established culture. Then that does all the work for you. Like guys will tell the guys on your team, the players will tell you everything you need to know. And that guy is just the coach or the female, whatever, whoever it is. 
is just she just embodies or he embodies that culture right and 100 percent. you know so i think that's where culture definitely comes in that should provide a lot of the answers for you yeah and i think that to your point taylor um i think that provides like the common stuff within that group yeah. of people you know the common way we train the common goal that we have whatever it is but to your point personalities are different and our juniors are now maybe a little bit different people because they have a year of life experience under their belt so they might be a little bit different Mm -hmm. so there are going to be some common things that hopefully carry on from year to year but I think you're right and that's the challenge is it's different people at different times in their life with different things going on from different places and how do we continue those common themes with this different group of people. And I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I really like the way you framed it. Well, Matt, and to like respond to you also, buddy, like, I think you hit it on the head. Like culture is literally everything. You know, when you talk of the way you talk about Marv, to me, it's like, that's a culture who created, We're you know, so John much. talks when all you, the time. You about Jamont, you know exactly what you're getting from Silvano. Exactly. Sure. You yeah. know exactly what you're going to get from that guy. Cause everybody knows what you're going to get from Silvano. Sure. You know what I mean? He has established exactly who he is and what you're going to get from that guy. And you know, every year in Shamont, what kind of team they're going to get. You don't even have to look at their roster. You can already make predictions of what they're going to get, where they're going to stand, all this stuff, because you know Silvano that well, you know? Yeah. And I mean, more so like, (laughs) I think Silvano is definitely the definition of like a culture for sure (laughs) because he's just you know credit to that guy that guy's got so much experience and he's like the guy was like in the gym with us and he was like almost 80 years old he's a beast um but I think more so to to me I want I would love to see more like not progressive culture but um this is not a political part of the podcast but uh you know like in terms of volleyball, like that's when I look back on my experience with Milan and Hawaii, like that's what he did. He created a culture of, of, of dudes who were just like hungry to learn and play like, and like what you said earlier, Jackson, like games are fun. And the other thing is like, you know, even for guys like Matt and I, guys who are like almost 30 years old, I still want to have fun. In fact, I maybe want to have fun more than the average college player. Because I've done free attack for almost twice as long as they have, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, dude, I don't, I, that doesn't entertain my brain anymore. I can just go on, if I want to, I can go on autopilot for the rest of the year and do just fine, you know? But like, I love, as I've gotten older, I've been like, man, I cannot believe we get to do this for a living. It is so amazing. Like, I love this experience so much. And, uh, you know, finding ways to, to be like, okay, like you said, like, for example, with Silvano, it's like, he's created a culture. Honestly, it's pretty boring for me. Yeah, you know? but whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but it's a culture. For sure. And at least there's a consistency. It's like, I know what I'm getting at practice yeah. with him. We were lucky enough to then create our own culture as players, which allowed us to combine those two. And, and when I was in Shemot, we had an amazing year together. Um, but I just... Yeah, I, I think like just to just to respond to what you said, like, dude, culture, culture is literally everything. And if you're on a team where you feel like 
the culture your coach is providing you isn't one you want to be a part of or is hard to buy in and everyone your teammates feel the same way like you need to figure it out as players to find a way to then create your own culture on top of what you're uh, expected to do every day because what you can't do and what I've spent months doing is being like this like complaining is so easy to do dude even out here you know I live in this is the most beautiful place I've ever played and I don't know if you felt the same way about the con is like I live in Taewool, especially like this place is the most beautiful place I've ever played. But dude, I had multiple days where I'd be like straight up depressed because trainings were feeling so boring. And I felt like we were making our voices heard and, and then practice would be over and guys were just complaining and nothing was changing. Like nothing was getting solved. We didn't take it up, but we didn't take ownership as individual players to be like, dude, you know what? I don't want to complain every day. I need, I want to be like, let's decide as players. Then if practice isn't going to change, we've expressed how we feel. Like let's, let's put the pressure on each other to like show up and push each other. Like it took us literally until a week ago to be like, Hey, we should probably stop bitching about practice as of via the last five months. We should probably like actually make moves to make this enjoyable again. And the, can be really hard to do. You know, if you're like an individual player who's like, I don't fit in or I don't buy in or, or, or whatever, you know, it's like to that, to some degree, like you need to buy in, you know, I felt that way with like, when I went to Hawaii, I didn't buy in with Charlie when I first met him, you know, we butted heads like crazy, which is why partly why he probably let me go from the team. We just didn't, we didn't connect very well. And it took me a little bit to be like, you know what, if I want to enjoy my experience, I have to buy in. Now, once I buy in, like I have options as a player, you know, what kind of things can I choose to work on on my own if I feel like my practice isn't being tailored towards what I want to work on there's there's other ways to push yourself but as players like you have to take ownership for for your reality you know and you have to be like man I don't like practice but like if I don't buy into it I'm gonna be miserable and that's what I experienced even this year dude this is my sixth year overseas and and it like like I'm learning a lesson I already knew in like college I'm learning it all over again like every day you have to wake up and make a choice you show up to practice, you start getting a feeling like, all right, we're going to do the same thing we've done in the last five months. We're going to do free attack. We're going to do a little servers passers. We're going to play some six on six with no score. That was most of our practices. And I was like, this sucks. Why can't we compete? Let's have a score. Like, why can't we mix up the hitting drill? Like mix up the warm-up drill. And we, I brought my concerns to the coach and there was nothing we could do. And finally just being like, dude, I'm not going to let this like make my life miserable. Make me want to maybe quit playing volleyball because of, something that can't change. And thankfully we had an experience recently that where we all as a team were like, let's just decide to buy in. Let's just decide to like push each other as players. And like, it made the world's difference, you know? Do you feel like that's sustainable? What I know is sustainable um, is the ability to make a choice as an individual. And if you as an individual, as a, as a unit, do you feel like it's sustainable for all of you guys to feel that way? Or is that the great question at hand? Well, I think it's, it's, it's tough. Like you want to believe that it can be sustainable because I want to believe that the guys who are here are professionals and want to get better. Um, the reality is some of them, I think are pretty content and complacent and, um, so there, to some degree, it's like you can't change everyone, but what you can do it and what I've even noticed, because there's been days I show up and like I can get away with with scoring at 80 percent, jumping 50 percent and trying 50 percent because practice. I just can. And 
when I see a guy who doesn't play in the game and he's pushing really hard and he like maybe says something to me because he's clearly is just like, dude, you're not giving everything. You know, it makes me think. And um, now I completely lost at what I was saying. So. <laughs> no, but you're, saying, brain, but... you're saying what you do know is it's sustainable to make that individual choice. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I just feel like, you know, as much as I would hope that everyone can sustain for two, and now we're talking about two months, can everyone sustain that moment we had last week and be like, hey, we all decided in this moment that we were going to take the next two months and give everything we had, no matter what, we we're going to try not to complain about all the little details of practice fits the way we want it or not, and just buy in and, and just do what we can to push each other out of respect for each other as individuals. Do I hope that can last? Yes. Do I think it will? I really don't know. But what I do know is, because I've been affected by this, if I'm not really trying and the guy next to me is like clearly pushing, it'll make me be like, who the fuck do, who do I think I am? Yeah. Like, or for me, it's like, I'm not letting our third middle crush me like this and practice. I don't care where we are. Like, it's the competitor in me that's just like, there's no way, you know? And so I think um, you you'd be surprised at what a huge influence you can have by giving everything. Like you'd be surprised at how contagious it is to give everything you have. I mean, the players, I look back and think of a guy like Davis Holt, who was a middle, who never played professionally. Um, but he was a guy who was just really tall, not a great jumper, not a great athlete, love Davis Holt. But dude, he was a guy who showed up every single day and gave everything. He was an inspiration to watch. And he was a guy who went to Marinol and, and, um, like was never an amazing, going to be a top recruit, whatever, and started and played really well his last two years and his last year specifically. And like another guy, you know, um, Anefre, um, yeah. and he played at Long Beach City, transferred to, I think it was Long Beach City, transferred to Hawaii, never really even played in the matches. But he showed up every day giving 100%. And I, I think about those guys now, I think about them on days where like, I don't feel like showing up these guys who I'm just like, how did they do it? How did they know they weren't going to play knew that they weren't the best volleyball players of all time and showed up every day. Like, dude, I'm fighting for that first position or whatever, you know? And uh, that's just really powerful. I think to have the, to learn to adopt that mindset and it's so contagious, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. good teams have those kinds of guys on them too like those really important role players, whether they're roles in matches or not. But like, if you're making your M1 think he has to push harder, you're He's probably helping the team. <laughs> For sure. For sure. And, and you're totally right. And if I look back, like it almost feels like literally every team I've ever played on had one guy specifically who was that guy, you know, like one guy who just was like, show up, work hard, don't make excuses. And just like, that was just him. You're just happy. You're just like, this is great, man. <laughs> I just so every day and walk out. Dude, I and, and I was always baffled. Like, you know, the, the other one was uh you remember, you know Jace Olsen? Of course. Dude, love that guy. If you want if you didn't know anything about volleyball, you'd be like, oh, this guy's the best volleyball player in the world. And then if you look at the statistics and he's hitting like negative 300 or something. <laughs> and i i used to look <laughs> i love you jace but i used to look at i used to look at that i used to still look at him as an example of like that's being your number one fan like that guy to me was the definition of like you would never know 
he's having a terrible game or not receiving well or, or not serving well or whatever, because his attitude was just always like, let's go. That's just the player he was. That's and again, just the that person kind of stuff. is. What's Jace's, that? Yeah, that's Jace also, is Jace's number one fan. Dude, and that's why you love a guy like that, you know? But those little guys, those characters, the player who isn't having a great game but looks like he's the superstar of the world, the guy who knows he's never going to play but he's fighting like today could be his chance. Like those little characters who maybe like you don't think will make a huge difference, those are the guys that I think about now, like to this day. Yeah. And uh, I just think, you know, so whatever character you are, like on your team or as an individual, like just understand that your character and your role matters so much, mm-hmm. like so much. And whether you think it does or not, like staying the course is literally the, the only solution. I yeah, agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Dude, thanks, thanks for, for your time. Thanks for saying I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Um, dude, I had a, an absolute blast with you guys. And I'll be honest, like, I don't really volley. I don't really talk volley with a lot of people. So that was uh, it's fun to, to speak with a coach. And Matt, I haven't talked to you in forever. So this was like super fun to, to catch up and share a little bit. Absolutely. Well, dude, good luck the rest of the season. And I hope that you get MVP because you fucking deserve it. <laughs> thanks dude i appreciate that um last thing can i just do a little plug for myself i'm gonna plug myself is that okay yeah, of course dude. um yeah my my instagram i really just use instagram is t april 13 um i've just been doing a, a, a i've kind of i went through a, a period of like a little bit of depression in trying to figure out like what do i want to do next with my life what do i want to do when volleyball is over and uh really wasn't sure and I've just recently, as of this last year, kind of flipped the script and kind of been like, all right, instead of worrying about what I want to do when I'm done, like, how can I best serve the world right now? And so I'm really going out of my way to um, give back to the volleyball community. So if you guys have any further questions or want to reach out, I'm going to respond to you because uh, I really do want to leave a bit of an impact um, on a community that really gave me so much. And so... Yeah, I don't know. I don't want that to be corny. I didn't mean to plug for no reason. I just, I really, I really am trying to hold myself accountable to do something good for the volleyball community. So this is just a way of me holding myself accountable. So I guess it's selfish. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's great. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll follow you. Word. Yeah, and then we'll put we'll put up your handle on uh, the website and the Instagram posts and all that stuff so people can reach out to you. Cool, man. Yes, sir. Well, man, have a good night. Thank you again, man. Yeah, buddy. Love you. This was great. Let's uh, let's catch up again soon. For sure. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Jackson, nice to meet you, brother. Nice to meet you too, dude. All right, man. Later. Peace, boys.